Last week, we started a three-week series out of the 90th Psalm, and I'm calling it, Let It Be, Whisper Words of Wisdom. In this particular psalm, we find the ingredients of living a wise life, and that's why it's called a wisdom psalm. We said last week, using our little chart here, that it begins very precariously with the idea of the contrast between us and God, God being everlasting to everlasting, and we being like the dust of the earth who live for a period of time and then we pass away. And I said last week that in the first stanza here, verses 1 through 6, this truth that God is immortal but we are mortal leads us to be afraid of death and ultimately being forgot, forgotten in the generations to come. So many times what we do is we try to seek immortality by doing those things that we think will allow us to leave a lasting legacy. So I used a few little icons to illustrate it. This idea of seeking immortality comes with the fact that we are all dots that live on a dot. The earth is but a small, small dot in the spectrum of the entire universe. And this dot has appeared at a moment in time, and it is relatively short compared to everlasting to everlasting. And we said that in this psalm that we can feel that as the years pass by, the sand in the upper chamber of the hourglass begins to migrate down to that lower chamber and we see that many times as the years pass on, we find ourselves asking the question, where did time go? Where did all the years go? It went back so quickly. Well, many times that causes us to have some coping mechanisms. I mentioned last week, just by way of review, that sometimes we avoid the talk of death. We don't like to talk about the topic. Let's move on. When we find people who are in the throes of grief around us, many times we try to shorten the aches and pains that they feel in the middle of their grief because we are uncomfortable. Don't cry. Don't cry. Sometimes we like to be connected to our ancestry that came before in hopes of the continued promise of being remembered, even if it's by our family name, in the generations to follow. Many times we turn to religion to look for the promises of a life hereafter. And that promise that we find often in religion can often turn toxic because of our fears. Because our fears of what is yet to come, we many times try to use this idea that my religion is the right one, yours is wrong, and let me convince you that I'm right and you're wrong, not so much as out of concern for you, but I need the reassurance in my own heart, okay? So that's kind of the first stanza of Psalm 90. The second stanza I want to talk to you this morning is talking about our humanity, embracing our humanity. Now, if we can look at the book of Psalms, as a collection, an anthology of different writings 
from different people in different circumstances is sort of like a playlist, if you will, of all the favorites in the nation of Israel. By the time they go into exile into Babylon and emerge out of exile from Babylon, these psalms are sort of like the hymn book of the nation. And encouched within this playlist are thanksgiving psalms and praise psalms, wisdom psalms, royal psalms that are used to elevate the status of the king. And then you have also lament psalms, psalms that enable them to cry and to grieve the loss of their homeland, the loss of their ancestors, the loss of their temple. Our problem, though, is while we see and are touched by the many figures of speech and metaphors and imagery that are in the Psalms, it really is removed from our own experience. Each collection of the Psalms is really old. It is expressed through what is now a dead language, Hebrew, but not the type of Hebrew that's spoken in Jerusalem today. The Hebrew from thousands of years ago and it uses old literary devices, and it really is dependent on old theologies about how God runs the world and how God uses judgment to control people. And we'll see that in the second stanza of this psalm. What I'm trying to say is the psalms are often quite challenging to interpret correctly and to apply correctly. Part of the problem is we don't really know who wrote the Psalms. Many of them are attributed to King David. This one, Psalm 90, is attributed to Moses, which if Moses did pen this Psalm, it would be the oldest Psalm in the Psalter. However, these Psalms, it seems as though, were written during times of the exile. And if Moses did not write this Psalm, his name is being used as a template for us. You remember the story of Moses and how he was not allowed to enter the promised land. He leads the people through 40 years in the wilderness, but what we find is he makes a mistake in Numbers chapter 20. He makes a mistake of, instead of speaking to the rock to provide water for the people, he actually takes his staff and he hits the rock. And when he hits the rock, Numbers chapter 20 says, God told him, because you made that mistake, you're not allowed to enter into the promised land. And as we read it with our lenses, we would think, boy, that is small potatoes, isn't it? Why on earth would he be allowed to enter the land because of that? And here's what's happening. There's a perspective or an image or an understanding of God that's couched within that culture. And that understanding of God is found in this proposition. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Because at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law before the generation is to go into the promised land, there is a list of blessings and a list of curses, and it seems as though it is saying in that moment, you better obey me this time. Your fathers and mothers, they chose to disbelieve, therefore they had to die in the wilderness. 
but you better believe if you want to go into the promised land. Now, is that an accurate representation of God? That's the question that's very important. And if it is not an accurate representation of who God is, what does that mean for our humanity? Do we really live under the shadow of fear all the time that if we make a mistake, God is going to constantly punish us? Well, it seems that way when you look at the text. So here's what it says in verses 7 through 12, the second stanza of this psalm. It says, We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And there's that wisdom concept there that's in the psalm. How do you live a better life? How do you live a longer life? Well, this psalm seems to be saying that you only have 70 or 80 years on this planet at best. But if you read back in the book of Genesis, what you find is there is much longer lifespans, at least as it's represented in the book of Genesis, people living a couple hundred years in length or even longer. So is the mentality of this writer that the reason our lifespan is shortening is because of our humanity. And our humanity is wrapped up in our mistakes and wrapped up in our sins and wrapped up in all of these bad choices that we make. Well, maybe that's why Moses is being used as the template here. And what we find is because Moses made a mistake, he wasn't allowed to enter into the land like uh, he hoped to go into the land. Rather, Joshua becomes the leader of the nation and takes them into the land. So is this saying, basically that the reason for the shortness of our human life is because of our sinfulness. Is it, the, is it because we are mortal? Is it because we are human that God is angry with us? And that the only way that God can be pleased with us as human beings if, is if somehow we become perfect. And yet life doesn't work that way, does it? What we find is some very... Uh, righteous and upright people that we have known that have been t taken sometimes very early in this life, right? Cancer, car accidents, war, whatever it may be. And so I was thinking this past week of Billy Joel's song, Only the Good Die Young. I, I think we resonate with that. So how does that square with this psalm? Well, you see, there is a book that I highly recommend if you want to take a deeper step into this. It's called How the Bible Actually Works by Dr. Peter Enns. Uh, he is one of my favorite authors, very readable. And what he does in this book is he begins to talk a little bit about the context of the Bible being so very different 
than our 21st century context. So what do we do? Maybe we need to step back for a moment and understand this psalm in its context before we try to use it in ours. To the ancient Israelites, there was a direct cause and effect mentality of all the events in life. So when something goes wrong, someone did something wrong that caused that. Now we still play with that mentality a little bit. So a tsunami comes and takes out a large portion of a population of a country and immediately our impulse is, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? Why is God punishing us this way? Are we being punished because we're not good enough, faithful enough, or pious enough? Well, this picture of God and human beings in the Psalms is interesting, but it's complex. The picture of God that's used in the Psalms is that of a warrior more than a father. It is culturally embedded, and it reflects their cultural moment. And what you find in the Psalms is a diverse conglomeration of different portraits of God. So in the 23rd Psalm, it says, God is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And yet, what we find is God is presented as a warrior in other Psalms. So what do we do with that? When we read selections out of the Psalms, we think that it is the sum total of who God is. And that's where we make our mistake. All we are really being given is a little insight as to how that culture and that people at that moment in time viewed God. Well, if we take this stanza as our only picture of God, our only understanding of what God is like, if we use that as a way of guiding our life and managing our life and controlling our life, your life is going to be constantly filled with fear. You're going to constantly be looking over your shoulder when something goes wrong. You're going to be constantly looking over your shoulder thinking, did this happen because I did something wrong here? Now, we all think that way. But I think it's better at times to understand that this is one little peephole glimpse of how a particular people viewed God. We need the entirety of the Bible and even beyond the Bible to get a better understanding of God. So when we are constantly living under this fear, we can't be our full selves. And that's why I'm calling this, we must embrace our humanity. Can I see your hands? How many of you are perfect here? No? None? Estes, okay. So when something goes wrong, yeah, could you have made a better choice? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes life is beyond your control. Sometimes life has consequences that you never intended because you do not have full control. That's a part of what it means to be human, right? That really does not necessarily reflect God's opinion of you. So we need to pump the brakes a little bit and understand that the psalmist here is using an old theology out of the Old Testament that comes really from the perspective of the book of Deuteronomy. So 
if that is the core of who we think God is, it's hard to love him, let alone worship him. It's hard to trust him, let alone obey him. So maybe, just maybe, we need to keep in mind here that this stanza is one that is written because they can't figure out why they are in the circumstances they are in. And why should we uh, be continued in this uh, experience of exile? And maybe even this, this idea of 70 or 80 years might not simply be the length of life, but it's reflecting upon a close proximity of time as to when the Jewish people were in exile. The book of Jeremiah tells us that it'd be almost 70 years that they would be outside the land before they could return to their homeland. So there's a lot of things that are going on here. So how do we embrace our humanity if we're using an old template of how ancient people viewed God? That's where Pete End's work comes in to play. He says things like this in the book. Where do we see the biblical writers imagining God within their boundaries? Everywhere, he says. There is no God talk in the Bible that isn't already filtered through human experience. The ancient languages the Bible was written in, Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic, are not some special divine code dropped down from heaven. The languages of the Bible were quite ordinary, he says. These languages evolved in a particular part of the world over time and were spoken by ordinary people from peasant to king. And those ordinary languages were then called upon to do the extraordinary, speak about the boundless creator. So even on the most basic level of language, I'm summarizing what's in the book, God is known through human experience. In fact, the creator must condescend to our humanity in order to be understood. Those ancient languages were used to describe God in ways that made sense to the ancient writers. So God is a shepherd, a king, a warrior, a gardener, and so forth. Those descriptions of God were taken from the surrounding world. God isn't actually a shepherd, but God cares for Israel the way a shepherd cares for his flock. God is, an act is not actually a king, earthly king, but he is like a king. And in a way, when the biblical writers look at God, they all reflect back something of their own experience as human beings, living in a particular time and in a particular culture, and they use familiar metaphors when they speak of God. They don't magically take off their cultural lenses, and here's the point, neither do we. To do so would to cease being human, which I don't believe God is asking any of us to do. God alone is God, so the words and thoughts we use can never be equated with God. When we make that false equation, we are actually limiting God, he says. No human culture is more equipped to speak of God than any other. So I think what Peter Enns is getting across is our understanding of God is always changing as the years go forward. And that's a part of wisdom. Yes, we take the imagery that is found in the Bible, but we do not cement it in place as our only understanding of God. 
To illustrate this, I want to show you a video. Now, um, this is a short little trailer of a project that Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel uh, fame is about to release this coming May. So it's not even released yet. And the uh, work that he is uh, going to release is called Seven Psalms. And I want you to uh, see uh, what he does by uh, what he wrestles with as a person in the 21st century. So let's watch. On January 15th, 2019, I had a dream that said, you're working on a piece called Seven Psalms. The dream was so strong that I got up and I wrote it down. But I had no idea what that meant. Gradually, information would come. I would start to wake up two or three times a week between 3.30 and 5 in the morning, and words would come. I'd write them down, then start to put it together. The Lord is my engineer. The Lord is the earth I ran on. The Lord is the face in the atmosphere. Let's just hear that. The path I slip and I slide. Okay, and here, I like to work and then discover. Oh, it's really interesting. I'm trying all the time to move things in this kind of flow way that puts you in a dream. And I think if you're willing to fall into a dream space, you're willing to let your judgment down. This is a journey for me to complete. This whole piece is really an argument I'm having with myself about belief or not. Yesterday's boy is gone Driving through darkness Searching for your forgiveness In sorrow, a beautiful song Lives in the heart and sings for all forgiveness I feel like we could probably have an eye the last in the line uh, hoping the gates won't be closed before your forgiveness there's something about just the loneliness of the one instrument there's some little emptiness in there that that can occur let's play it let's play it and see what that does I was just sitting right next to him, and he sang the whole thing, like right in my ear. It was very soft. And then I could hear it, the symbolism. How the limitation of your belief always tends to be tied to your conception of your mortality. A white light eases the pain. In the sense that you're part of a flow of a thing. Two billion heartbeats It's a sunrise and it's a sunset. Or does it all? Begin again. 
sacred heart that David played to make his songs of praise. We long to hear those strings that set his heart ablaze. Just see if I want this. The Lord is my engineer. Let me hear the guitar for a second. The Lord is my record producer. The Lord is the music I hear. Once more. Deep in the valley and the sea. The Lord is my engineer. The Lord is the train I ride on. The Lord is the coast. The coast is clear. People say, why is it that you always want to change your sound? And I'm not thinking that way at all. I'm looking for the edge of what you can hear. I can just about hear it, but I can't quite. That's the thing I want. How do you get there? You know, it's a, it's a travel because it's, it's way on the horizon. And sometimes you find it to make something that has magic. I love that video clip is it shows you the process that Paul Simon's going through in writing new music, okay? Each psalmist, whoever wrote all these psalms, had to go through that same process. It wasn't like it was divinely dropped down from heaven. They struggled, they wrestled with their own humanity, their thoughts of the afterlife, their mortality versus immortality, the fact that God is beyond their comprehension. And as they wrestle with these psalms that they're writing, sometimes they put forth things that they cannot actually get out of. And that's their own humanity and their own cultural experience bound in time. You know, we filter our understanding of God through our own peculiarities. So we must embrace not only our humanity, that's who we are, but we must embrace our weirdness. Now, I, there is a book that is called The Weirdest People in the Weir World. And the writer here, Joseph Henrich, uh, takes 650 pages to talk about us in the West and how we look at life, how we interpret life. And he uses... This acronym, WEIRD, W-E-I-R-D. And he talks about how all of this shapes the way we look and experience life. So W stands for Western Mindset. E, most of us that live in the United States and the West are educated. We grew up in an industrialized culture. We for the most part, compared to the rest of the world, are rich, and we who live in the United States value democracy. This is the exact opposite of the Psalms. 
not a Western mindset, you're reading an Eastern mindset. You're not reading necessarily educated people. By far, most people that lived during the time of the Old and the New Testament had limited educational opportunities. Certainly, they did not live in an industrialized culture. They lived in an agricultural type culture. Most were not rich. Most were poor. Most were trying to scrape by day-to-day living. And democracy, there was no such thing in the Bible. You have empires, you have kings, you have armies that conquer people. So when we read something that is as ancient as the Psalms, we are entering a whole new world. But think about these five things here. The way we experience life as human beings is conditioned by the fact that we're Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Well, Joseph Hunrich says, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous as the subtitle. If you want to read all 650 pages, you can. But I just summarized the book for you. This author was interviewed by Pete Enns and Jared Bias on uh, the Bible for Normal People um, and Faith for Normal People. They have one side of it is Bible, one side of it is faith. So if you listen to podcasts and you're interested in this, you will find it um, under their Faith for Normal People. So what do we do with all of this? Now, here's where we're going to bring it all together, okay? Each day that we live, we have to number our days, and we have to have a heart of wisdom. Do these insights help us? Absolutely. Absolutely they do. Our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a a moan. You look at someone that's 80, 90, 100 years old, those last days are filled with moaning, right? The things that they used to be able to do, they can no longer do. The freedom they used to have, they no longer have. The choices that they could make, they can no longer make because they're dependent upon other people. And those of you who have had to take care of aging parents or grandparents know how heartbreaking that is. That once an individual that was creative and vibrant and all these things have their options narrowing down as they get older. So all of this is helping us, but we are at the same time reminding ourselves that all of these things are not necessarily a direct one-to-one correspondence with how God feels about us. Do you understand that? God loves us as human beings. That's who we are. That's who he made us to be. We have to be responsible with our free will, and we must embrace wisdom on a regular basis to make good choices. But at the same time, We need to realize one of our tendencies as human beings is to make God into our image. I like the way Mark Twain put it. You remember Mark Twain, his uh, little bit of biting humor. Here's how he put it. 
God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. We all do that, don't we? We all tend to make God in our own image rather than understanding that God is beyond all of us. But that is inescapably human of us to do that. And I think God understands that. So what if this psalm is telling us that it's okay for us to be human? In fact, the psalm that I read between the two songs that we sang elevates us. In the Psalms, depending on which Psalm you're reading, can present man as a worm or a vice-regent of God. You have a huge, wide perspective in the Psalms. Psalm 8 tells this story under a different dynamic. Psalm 8 is technically a praise psalm, but the reason for God's praise is that He made mankind, as it says right here, a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What if we were to combine the idea that we take wisdom from Psalm 90, which has a much different portrait of humanity, that we're always making mistakes, always living out the consequences of our decisions, and we counterbalance it with Psalm 8, that God encourages us to use our humanity and creativity and to be able to be all that God wants us to be. Here's what's true about you, and here's what's true about me. We're all small, we're all stuck, we're all sinful, and we're all significant. You've got to balance all those things together. You are truly significant in God's eyes. And don't let a certain image taint that. What if God is okay with us being human? Recognizing how our thinking of God is bound in our own time and place is freeing us because it helps us to see outside that box we often think of. Okay, let me show you one more resource that's not yet released, but it will be released this coming Tuesday. How many of you watch The Office? Anybody Dwight Schrute fans here? Okay. He has a new book that's coming out called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. He too was interviewed by Peter Enns on the Faith for Normal People podcast just this past week. It was released April 20th. It's episode number 11. I encourage you to look it up and listen to it. He's not a Christian in the fullest sense of the word. He adheres to the Baha'i faith, but what an interesting conversation as he talks about the need for a soul boom, a a spiritual rejuvenation. Um, I, I like the fact that here is an individual that has moved beyond his great acting in that comedy series to think about some things that are very, very serious. And one of the things that he mentions on this podcast, actually, he quotes another podcaster by the name of Pete Holmes uh, when he says this. I love this. He says, um, we, we perceive God uh, is unknowable in the fact that if the definition of God is some kind of creative consciousness that is beyond time and space, that has, been, that has made this incredible physical universe that we live in 
that is almost unknowable and chock full of mysteries, then we are talking about a a force so far beyond our comprehension that we are like dogs trying to understand the internet. Isn't that a great line? When it comes to God, we are sort of like dogs trying to understand the internet. But yet, at the same time, when Jesus comes into this world, he makes God more knowable for us. And here's what I like. Ryan Zahn says in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. This is a great line. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. And that's the great advantage of us living all these years later because in our humanity, we begin to gain more and more wisdom about what God is like and what he is doing in the course of our lives. We get glimpses of the divine in our humanity because God made it that way. And we also get glimpses of the devil in our stupidity because of the choices that we make. So we make these counterbalance because that's the way of wisdom. Would you stand with me, please? I want you to just kind of close your eyes and meditate for a second. And I have a few closing words for you today. There's nothing you can do to be worthy of God's love. Therefore, there's nothing you can, be, you can do to be unworthy of God's love. God's love for you is not predicated on you. It is predicated on God. Sometimes we get scared when we face our humanity rather than embrace our humanity. God's not scared, and he meets us right where we are. I think sometimes we miss the comfort that is present because we've been conditioned to earn love instead of understanding we were made from love and for love. And if we can do that and have a purer heart in love, we will see God all the more clearly. Amen. I hope you have a wonderful week and uh, hope you'll join us next week after church is done for a time of fellowship around the lunch hour. Have a great week, everybody.